The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then we go to Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and then we segue into what we call the historical books. Historical books, including Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, but now what I call the first and seconds. First and second Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And uh, these books are a large corpus of material that will also extend past Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And those will be called the historical books. The Torah, or the Pentateuch, is the law. Uh, these books are the historical books, and then we'll look at wisdom literature and we'll unfold it. We're going through the Bible a book a week, and uh, if you're new here, um, uh, I've never done this before, so I'm half crazy to have chosen to do it. I've been having a lot of fun in the study and prep, but it's really hard to land the plane, so to speak, because you're going through a whole book on what in the world do you communicate and convey in you know, 30 or 40 minutes, uh, give or take, about a book. So we'll, we'll look at just 1 Samuel this Sunday and then God willing, 2 Samuel, and maybe before Christ returns, I'll finish the series. I don't know. It's, it's a long shot bet. Uh, remember, during the period of Judges, we had 350 to 410 dark years, and the book's about that big in your Bible. Remember? We're going to look at 1 Samuel today. It's a much bigger book and covers 93 years. And one of the reasons these things are important to look at from a, a high-level synthetic as opposed to what I would usually do, a verse-by-verse verse exposition, I'm learning a ton. I don't know if you are, but it reminds me the big picture and the small picture. And, they, and it's, it's helpful to keep both of those uh, in our minds as we're reading Scripture. And I learned a ton the past 10 days just diving into 1 Samuel over and over and over again. Um, it's hard to miss the repetition of biblical, uh, let's just say, sin and narrative. For example, we have key women who are the backbone of many of these stories. We begin with Sarah and Hagar. Big problem, big tension. We then come to Rachel and Leah. Big problem, big tension. And we come to 1 Samuel, we have Hannah and Peniah. Big tension. Nothing new. It's the same issue. One's fertile, one's infertile. Every time. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that her sister Leah continued to uh, produce children, she became jealous of her sister and she goes to Jacob. Genesis 31 and says, give me children or else I die. Infertility is nothing new. It was true in antiquity and it's true today. Cindy and I went through uh, five plus years of infertility. Uh, we had one child uh, who's now 30, almost 35 and then we adopted the next three because we couldn't have any more biological. She would say, give me children else I die. She had to have her four kids and so we bought them. <clears throat> Gotta please the wife, right? Uh, just as a side note, every, every woman in scripture who is infertile had children. I've told parents this for years, parents that have come to me and cried and talked about adoption and the difficulties of adoption and infertility and the vitro and all these things. Every woman in scripture who was infertile eventually had children. Just as an oh, by the way. First uh, Samuel begins with a change of leadership. We've got this dilemma and Hannah is the woman who begins this story, if you will, and she prays for a son and the son is Samuel. And she says, if you give me this child, I'll give him back to you. That's the, that's the agreement. And God hears her prayer. And there's almost a comedic story where Eli thinks she's drunk. 
you know, and, and so that, that whole exchange goes on. What's happening in the book of Samuel at the highest level is we're going from the period of judges to a monarchy. The period of judges, what was the, the phrase we talked about again and again? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So now we've got that 400, let's just call it 400 year period of judges in a very short book going into 1 Samuel, a very long book over 93 years and we're gonna go from judges to a judge named Samuel who becomes a prophet named Samuel who then installs the monarchy. It's a very interesting change. We've got the law, the corpus of the law, we've got the Pentateuch, but now we've got to understand not just the history, but how God is going to work through fallen uh, leaders who don't judge. A judge was not a person in a black robe. A judge was a military leader. So now we're going to have Samuel be that last judge, military leader, and the first prophet of God. Let me read a little bit of the backstory. There's so much in this book, just to give you again a high level. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, we don't have slides today because I was delinquent getting them done. But 1 Samuel 3, just listen if you want to turn in your Bibles. 1 Samuel 3 verse 10. I'm going to read uh, uh, more scripture than I normally would in a message like this, but I hope it'll make sense. Then the Lord came and stood and called at other times, Samuel, Samuel. This is the story where he's the young boy, he's asleep. He hears God talking to him. He gets up, thinks Eli's calling him. And he goes, and Eli finally says, go back to bed and listen and just pay attention until <clears throat> the Lord comes again. Samuel said, speak, your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him what I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew. Because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore, I've sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. I wonder if he slept after that. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Eli called to Samuel. Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. He said, what is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more so, excuse me, may God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Samuel grew in the Lord and the Lord was with him and he let none of his words fail all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Now we have a group that just came back from Israel and those of you who went with me recently, what's Dan to Beersheba mean? Good job, from New York to LA. When you describe Israel, the land from the highest part, it's not geographically like from Dan to Beersheba, like these two cities. In fact, the land would have gone much further south had they obeyed God, but it's a way of saying from New York to LA. That's the explanation. From Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet. The word spread, this guy is a judge, but now he's becoming a prophet. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, or as they say in Israel, Shiloh, 
because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Uh, Again, if you've been to Israel with me, we were at Shiloh. We were at Shiloh. We watched a video at Shiloh. We know the tabernacle complex was at Shiloh for a period of time. The tabernacle was the portable complex. And so the boy Samuel is growing up living in that compound and Eli is the priest that is overseeing it. Um, The Philistines are a constant irritation to Israel and it's a constant issue of fighting them and not fighting them. And during Samuel's period, um, Israel sort of gets ahead of herself and goes to battle with the Philistines and they, they take the ark as basically a lucky charm or an amulet. We'll go up against the Philistines and we'll use the Ark of God. Uh, Again, I can't underscore enough, Spielberg was right about so much of what he depicted in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because the idea was, if you get this Ark in front, armies will fall before you. That goes back to his Jewish teaching and study, I presume. And again, I iterate, I think he had the size, maybe not the style, but the size of the box correct. So anyway, they're going to use this as an amulet, as a, 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 mag- a magical wand, and we'll go fight the Philistines. But what happens? The ark's taken, and the two sons of Eli are killed in the process. The report comes back to Eli. At this time, he's 98 years old. He's an, uh, put it in our language, he's an old fat guy. And the Greek text says he was heavy with himself. He's an old fat guy. And when he hears the news about the ark and his sons, he falls over backward and breaks his neck. Studying that this week was interesting, thinking about neck surgery. Anyway, um, so now Samuel becomes the prophet, the, the leader now that Eli is off the scene. Now he is the leader of Israel as this judge slash prophet. He's not a king. Interestingly, as these biblical narratives come back around, Eli had two wicked sons. Samuel didn't do so well with his sons either. Nothing's new under the sun. And just because you and I have problems with our children doesn't mean we're terrible people. Uh, it's, it's, it's systemic, right? Well, to digress a little bit, the author of the book, for some of you uh, BSF, Precept, CBS, study folks, Bible nerds like me, the author is a disputed topic because Samuel could not have written all of First and Second Samuel. I think he wrote most of it, but we have two timestamps in our Bible in 1 Samuel 22.5 and later in 1 Chronicles 29.29 that the prophet Gad and the prophet Nathan also recorded some of it. And just as a sidebar about your Bible, about inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, uh, having multiple authors to a book does not take away the authority or the inerrancy of the passage. That make sense? Liberal scholars, of course, attack the Bible for this reason. And again, those of us who've been to Israel, when we go to the Israel Museum, you see a facsimile of the text of Isaiah in the, uh, the, the shrine of the book, it's called. And it's, a, it's, a, it's not the actual one. It's a, the actual one's hermetically sealed and saved. But this is the facsimile of it. And the thing that was the big discovery of this so-called Dead Sea Scroll was it took us back 2,000 years earlier than any other manuscript that, that we, had, we had discovered. And it proved, uh, the liberal scholars were wrong, that multiple authors had pieced this book together because they had one continual scroll of all the book of Isaiah. And so it just it blew the argument out of the water and it made more sense the Bible's authenticity and accuracy. Well, all that is a sidebar. The, the author contribution to 1 Samuel, a bit debated. I still think Samuel was the primary author, but Gad and Nathan 
contribute to it. Now, you remember there's three offices in the Old Testament, a prophet, priest, and king, and no one can hold all three, right? The one who comes, the Messiah, is the only prophet, priest, king. And this, of course, is the foundation for, as Grace said so beautifully, the three primary characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, who are going to represent this prophet, priest, and king tension that we're going to read through the whole storyline. Um, Warren Wiersbe uh, writes to explain 1 Samuel. He says, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles are books of history that record the establishment of the kingdom, its years of victory and defeat, and the end of a divided kingdom. One lesson is obvious as you read these books. And then he quotes Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Whenever the nation exalted God, God exalted the nation. But when the rulers, prophets, and people turned from the law, God removed his blessing. Wordsby continues, the truth is seen not only in the history of the nation collectively, but also in the lives of the leaders personally. Nationally, it had an effect personally. Kind of like America. Kind of like any culture. As individuals go, so goes the nation. As the nation goes, so goes the nation. It works hand in hand, right? Both David and Solomon disobeyed God and paid dearly in their homes as well as, uh, in personal life, as well as their political capital. Um, it's hard to give a purpose to this book in a sentence or two, and I like to try to do this just for my own learning, but I came up with a cumbersome one. God's sovereign faithfulness to his chosen people sets the stage for the one true king. God's sovereign faithfulness to his chosen people who are going to fail and make all kinds of mistakes sets a foundation, sets a theological stage for the prophet, priest, and king that's going to come. Samuel is the judge prophet. Saul is the first flawed king. And David is the first faithful king. Uh, let me read, and I'm going to back up and then come back forward. I'm going to jump and read 1 Samuel 15 because I want to give you a backdrop of what's actually going on with King Saul. Grace referred to this, but let me unpack it a little more of his disobedience. And I'm going to read from chapter 15, beginning at verse 10. 1 Samuel 15, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I've made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Why would Saul set up a monument for himself? Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is the bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I have heard? This story goes back all the way to Deuteronomy, even Exodus technically, where the Amalekites are the worst irritation Israel had, and they did not follow God's command in dealing with them. And Saul was given the first order of business, destroy them. 
I know that's unconscionable for us in our liberal mindsets of genocide language, and we don't understand theology, so we run to emotion. There's a large backstory we don't have time to go into, but the Amalekites were the persistent enemy. They hated Yahweh Elohim, and they hated Yahweh Elohim's people, and they would destroy Yahweh Elohim's people. God knew this. So God, on occasion, says, you exterminate them. I'm sorry. That's what the text says. So we have to get over our, our, our you know, sentimentality about you know, genocide and so forth because it's not that simple. Anyway, let me continue. Saul said, they have, brought them, uh, they have brought them, the people, from the Amalekites. The people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. All the half-truths in here just make you want to cough up a hairball. It really does. Uh, he was the king. He was the king. All he had to say was, no, kill those animals. That's what God said. So this is the flaw in his character. It continues, verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Verse 17, Samuel said, it is not true enough that you were little in your own eyes. You were made head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people... Oldest trick in the book, right? The woman you gave me. The serpent. And when our kids were young, we used to try and teach them, you know, if, if you just say, I did this, it's so much easier. We, we, will, we will give you so much mercy if you say, I lied, I, I stole it, I didn't, I, I set my brother or sister up, I own it. It'll go so easy on you. Every parent going, yeah, we tried it, didn't work. Doesn't work here either. Same old story all the way back to the garden. The people so something out. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. We all know it, right? Obedience is better than sacrifice. To heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination as is, is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I've heard the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. I, I, I cringed watching Grace say, no, not you, no, not you, no, not in, in this culture where everybody has to have a ribbon. She just dissed seven souls. Yeah. Yeah. That's how life works. That's how life works. And Saul 
is going to lose the kingdom and there's no way back for him. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He is not a man. He should change his mind. I'm going to give it to your friend. You're not going to have this anymore. Then he said, I have sinned, verse 30, but honor me now. Before the elders, he's trying to save face, and my people before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Interesting nuance. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So what the serving the Lord, what they've done is they've gone and offered a sacrifice, probably a burnt offering that was both a guilt and sin offering uh, for what Saul had done. So think about that. They've gone, they're probably near Shiloh. They've gone and done this. And now he comes back, bring me Agag. And if you don't know this story, this is one of the more chilling passages in 1 Samuel. Verse 32 continuing, Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. You know, it's one thing in the heat of battle to continue fighting. And I've, I've known a lot of military men and women in our years sitting I have. And when they're in Afghanistan or Iraq or they're deployed in a hot zone, it's one thing in the heat of a battle and PTS can happen when you come home and come down. But when you're fighting, it's one thing to stay in the fight. You think about a, a, just the calculated nature of the prophet coming in, give me a sword and just killing a guy in cold blood. You think Saul and his people ever forgot that lesson? It didn't make perhaps as big an imprint as it should have. But when I read that, I go, it's one thing in battle to keep fighting. It's another just to take a sword out. And the way the text is brutal, hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord. Because that's what God had told him Saul, uh, Saul to do. Tragic verse 35 Samuel goes home. Samuel did not see Saul again till the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. I know it's a long passage, but it's important to set that table. Now, let's change gears a little bit and talk about a high-level view of this book. And I want you to think about the word choice. And that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. Uh, Saul is a choice man. He's handsome. He's taller. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, I, was it, who was the first president that was uh, on television? I just lost it. Who? Oh, it had to be pre-Kennedy, wasn't it? Eisenhower. Prior to that, they didn't want to be on television because they knew their appearance would be a negative. FDR was in a wheelchair part of his life, right? So you can't go on television then. And so they would, he would only do like behind desks and things. And so the idea of the short man syndrome was a problem for a presidential candidate. Nothing's new. Saul looked like a king. He was tall. He was head and shoulders. He was the son of a valiant warrior. He looked like a king, talked like a king, didn't walk in the metaphorical sense like a king, but he's the one they choose. The public announcement is striking. And Samuel calls all of Israel together at Mizpah and says, okay, I'm going to announce to you this king that you've wanted. But there's a problem. And some of you know the story too well. They can't find him. They can't find him. First Samuel 10, verse 22. Therefore, they inquired further of the Lord. I love it. Well, we can't find him. Hey, Lord, where is the guy? 
Has he come here yet? So the Lord said, behold, he is hiding himself in the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood up among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. Now compare and contrast this with the teenager, David. David had been anointed by Samuel. Grace did a great job going through all the kids. I envisioned him probably the tallest to the shortest. Who knows? And, oh, not there. Go, go find the little snotty-nosed teenager who's tending sheep. Bring him in. I'm not going to go until you bring him back. Bring him back. They anoint the teen. Fast forward, Jesse, the father, uh, go check on your big brothers. You know how you send care packages off to your kids in college? So Jesse says, I'm going to send some provisions to my boys who are fighting the Philistines. And uh, David, go give me a report on how they're doing. That's basically the the storyline. So David, of course. So he leaves the sheep and he takes the cheese and the curds and the wine and whatnot, takes them to his his brothers to to the battle line. 1 Samuel 17. David has heard the story about Goliath, hadn't seen him yet. 1 Samuel 17, 22. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. The tall, head and shoulders king is hiding in the baggage. The little teenage boy who's a shepherd leaves the baggage. And I love the English, the way we hear our own metaphors in English sometimes. They're not in the Hebrew or Greek, but they translate. David left his baggage. I'm leaving my baggage behind. You can't see the contrast more vivid. I'll leave it with the baggage handler. And then, of course, he goes forward and his brothers give him grief because what are you doing here, you little brother of ours? Go back and take care of the sheep. You got no responsibility here. And, you know, I love David's response. It was just a question. I'm just asking what's going on here. I mean, what's the big deal? Um, There's so many lessons from this passage but it goes back to this choice. The big lesson I would give you for the whole book is God's choice should be yours and my chief concern. God's choice should be yours and my chief concern. When our children were young, we would uh, spend every night reading books and having little devotional routines like so many of you are faithful to do with your kids and grandkids. And uh, what's one of the questions we ask our kids when they're young? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I tweaked that a little bit, and I would ask my kids, what do you think God wants you to be when you grow up? That's a very different question. And not that it was helpful, <laughs> but it was just a different question to put to them, what do you think God wants you to be when you grow up? Because I want to instill them a little bit more than just your desire and your passion and your idea of who you are and your dream and vision to be you know, a police man, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever it is, a musician. Um, I came across a a meme this week. Someone sent me and it was, it was a, the picture behind it was Barbie. And it said, following your dream in your heart so you can achieve your destiny isn't a biblical doctrine. It is the plot of a Barbie movie. And the Western culture has been so co-opted with this idea it's my choice, I mean my, you've heard me say this once or twice, horizontal Christianity. And what the book of 1 Samuel is going to teach us in, in black and white and 3D is God's choice is what matters. You align with God's, as Wiersbe said, as you elevate and follow God's righteousness, he will elevate and, and, and bless you. As you turn away, it's going to go poorly for you. It's cause and effect. You can, you can 
put a, put a hanger on it. It's not going to go anywhere. God's choice should be our chief concern. Now, in your English Bibles, you don't need to have Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic knowledge to do this. If you take a concordance, you can go online if you don't know how to do this. If you use the NIV, I'll still pray for you. Uh, you look for an NIV concordance. And you look up the word choice, choose, chosen. Same with NASB, ESV, RSV, whatever you use. Look up the word choose, cho- choice, chosen, all the iterations of that English word, and just follow it through First Samuel. It'll blow your mind. And that's why I think the biggest theme of this book is God's choice is what we're to align to. Let me color some of this in for you. God warned Israel about having a king, Right? He said, if you do this, he's going to take your sons for his army. He's going to appoint commanders of fifties and thousands that basically they're going to train troops. He's going to conscript your daughters to be perfumers, bakers, and cooks. He's going to take your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves. He's going to take a tenth of your flock and your seeds. He's going to conscript men and women servants. And oh, by the way, there's going to come a day when you're going to regret you did this. And that's in 1 Samuel 8, 18. Then you will cry out to me in that day because your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Do you hear it? You have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you that day. God's choice, what aligns with him is different than man's choice. Our emphasis needs to be, our chief concern is this what God would want me to choose to be when I grow up, to use it allegorically. The tension is going to continue throughout the reign of Saul and David. Saul, of course, is going to be the one who's going to choose for himself again and again. David is going to make a different choice. Let's bring it full forward to our, fast forward to our own lives. Um, God gives us grace and mercy when we sin. And many of us have been, uh, the consequences of our sins have been taken away. But some of our consequences have not been taken away, right? You and I make a choice. Uh, I have many friends that have come from a drug and alcohol abuse background. If you've abused substances for a very long time and you maybe came to Christ, got rehab, got cleaned up, maybe been sober for an awfully long time, there may be uh, medical damage to you because you abused those uh, substances. The consequences are not necessarily taken away. Make sense? So when we make a choice that's not God's choice, he sustains us in mercy and grace. That does not mean there are not consequences. Got that? That's simple enough. Some people think, well, he should wipe all those things away. Saul's confirmation as king did not mean there would be no negative consequences because Saul turned out to be a flawed king. Quite the contrary. And this is, I mean, Christians read this book and they get so upset. Well, how could God do that to Saul? No, Saul did it to Saul. But God chose him. Well, no, not if you read carefully what's going on in the storyline. They chose a king. And the debate that Samuel, debate I use in quotations with the Lord is, look, uh, they want a king. Uh, They shouldn't have a king. Well, give them a king. It's going to be a terrible situation. At the end of that chapter I read, they departed. He never talks to him again. He doesn't show up till his funeral. So man gets choices. You and I have choices. We have the freedom to make a bad choice. Ergo, you and I may live with consequences. God's grace and mercy extends even though we made a bad choice. And that's going to bear fruit in the man, David. But we still may limp along. Let me just put it this way. 
unless you're like a super spiritual person, and I'd like to meet you, none of us in this room can say we didn't make some bad choices and we have lingered with the consequences, right? I mean, otherwise, find a different church because that's what I think. Not that I'm right, you're just going to be unhappy is my point. (laughs) 1 Samuel 12 can be summed up in this way. Fear of the Lord, serve him, listen to his voice, do not rebel. Listen to this. If you or the king rebels, God's hand will be against you. Even in this, God did not abandon his people according to his great name. When we were praying this morning before the service, I had read Psalm 24 and 25 this morning in my devotions. And I'm always struck when I read the phrase, he forgives our transgressions for his name's sake. That always dismantles me. He doesn't forgive me because I deserve forgiveness. He doesn't forgive me because I said the right words. He doesn't forgive me if I quote 1 John 1, 9. He forgives me, don't overtake that. He forgives me for his name's sake. These are my people. I chose them. I love them. I died for them in their place on their behalf instead of them. I'm going to forgive them because it reflects on me. That's what God is saying. True in the Old Testament, true in our current day. Well, The lesson for a believer is you and I need grace and mercy to endure the consequences of our poor choices. That's where I think we missed the point of Saul is we need God's grace and mercy because otherwise we'd be hopeless. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 2. Now, Saul chose for himself. Hear it again. He chose for himself. It's a theme. 3,000 men. Uh, On it goes. Saul's failures continue to mount. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and I'll send you to Jesse. And then listen, for I have selected a king for myself. This is the king that people chose. He looked like a king. He was head and shoulders. He's tall. He's a son of a valiant warrior. He should do well in that office. Now, I'm going to select one for myself, we might paraphrase. I'm going to select a king for myself among the sons of Jesse. The word selected is a fascinating word study in the Old Testament. In Psalm 78, 70, it says he chose David, his servant, to sh- from the sheepfolds to shepherd his people, Jacob. It's a word play. I chose a shepherd to shepherd my people. I I chose him. And that's the whole point here, that God is going to choose, not man's choice. The major turn of events, God doesn't choose the firstborn. He chooses the youngest. That's leaving all the Jews scratching their heads. Wait a minute. That's why they say, what are you doing here? It's not that they're just jerky to their younger brother, which all older children are to their siblings. It's just that the, the, the process was the oldest son got everything. And that's not true in the way God picks. Well, uh, seven times, seven times, and and we don't read it in the text seven times. We only read it twice. But Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one. The Lord has not chosen this one either. So we can hear him saying that seven times, even though they're not all recorded. And then, of course, David comes along, and that's God's choice. He's anointed, and then the spirit fills David, and an evil spirit terrorizes Saul. And that begins the conflict. You've got this wonderful, and again, those of you who study these books know this already, these little, I, they call them, in movies, they call them Easter eggs. You know, Easter egg is in a film. It's, it either goes back or forward to another screenplay. I call these little Easter eggs in, in the text. And you got this Easter egg. You, hear, you see Saul with a spear in his hand. 
many times, spear in his hand, spear in his hand, and David with a harp in his hand. And you begin to see these juxtapositions between the flawed king and the chosen king. And they go throughout the whole story in lots of layers. Um, Goliath is the champion of the Philistines, and he comes out and shouts to Israel, 1 Samuel 17, 8. He shouted to the ranks, why do you come out and draw up in battle array? Am I not a man? Am I not the man for yourselves? And let him come out and fight me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will become our servants and serve us. The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Who is the tallest guy in the army? Saul. Who should have gone out and faced the giant? Saul. When the boy David comes up and hears the rumor in the story and he can't handle Saul's armor, it says not tested in our English language. That's a difficult phrase to, to translate. And again, this is my sanctified imagination. I'm still seeing him as a teenage boy against a very large man. And so it may just simply have been a matter of fit. And he relies on what he knows. He'd never try, he can't handle this. I mean, you think of a Frodo with big armor, right? And it'll work. So that's sort of the backdrop of it. Um, David left the baggage and goes to the front line. And then before you know it, he's talking to Saul. First Samuel 15, 17, 5 just explains this giant. He had a bronze helmet on his head, clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels. Verse 16, the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. We just, we just talked about this through, well, not even a week ago when we were in the Valley of Elah. And we know that's a, I always tell people, you can't move a valley, a mountain, a river, a spring, a stream, a lake. They're, they're part of Israel. You can't move these things. You can move buildings and churches and tells, but you can't move valleys, mountains, rivers, streams, lakes. And so we're in the Valley of Elah where this took place. And we know where Sukkot is, Askoth is. We know these areas, Epidemimes. So you're talking about a football field in either direction, maybe four football fields if you want to be generous where this occurs. What people miss, what I missed for years was he does this twice a day for 40 days. What's the, what's the message? Choose a man, choose a man, choose a man. Are you getting the theme of the book? You made a choice to have a king not according to how I wanted you to live. There he is. The culmination of the storyline is here's a giant that can't be beat by a human. And the giant taunts, choose, choose, choose. I think theologically they understood what they were hearing. He chose poorly. We chose Saul. We should have chose Yahweh Elohim. We should have chose Yahweh and Samuel to choose the king, not a king that we wanted. 80 times they hear this from a Philistine, choose, choose, choose. First Samuel 17, David takes a stick in one hand and he chose for himself. The only time it's written in first or second Samuel, David chose for himself what? Five smooth stones. Uh, I, I was, when we go to the, I don't know, this last group didn't do it, but sometimes our groups go down in this and they, 
go find, you know, I go, go find the rock with hair on it. That's the one, you know, and, and they, there's rocks everywhere. If every American tourist took 30 pounds of rocks out of Israel, it wouldn't make a difference. Um, there's just rocks everywhere. Uh, some theorize that they actually, the tourism department puts them down there. I don't think so. Anyway, but, but they come back with rocks like this and I go, no, no, you can't kill a giant with a pebble. You need a rock like a softball. You need a big rock if you're going to knock out a guy in the forehead, right? And we've all seen caricatures and cartoons and depictions of it and bad films and good films trying to reenact this whole thing. But however, in your imagination, he goes out with five smooth stones. And I love some of the uh, speculation of preachers that I love and respect about why he chose five and not one. And I'll leave it at that. Um, What's the point of the story? David chose to go fight the giant. David chose five stones as a weapon. David, this teenage shepherd boy, is going to absurp the king who had the armor and the sword and all the appointments that went with it who should have been the one to go out and fight. Um, You know, what's great about this is God chose a kid, not a man. It turns things over. Your choices, any of your kids eeny, meeny, miny, mow their way through life? Uh, one of my daughters, I forget what age she was, but she would any everything was eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Uh, catch a tiger by a toe. If, what is it? If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. My mother told me to pick the very best one, and you are not it. And she would do that about what she was going to eat, what she was going to wear. I mean, it was it was comical. She'd eeny, meeny, miny, mo her way through life. I never stopped. Some of you mathematicians could figure it out. You know what the algorithm was, and it was like you know just go one, two, three, and that's it. But you have to go through the rhyme. And I think Christians, unintended consequences, we think eeny, meeny, miny, mo theologically. Wisdom is sound, uh, the sound principles of wisdom are, the alignment is, is this God's choice? Is this God's choice? I have a dear friend who's uh, contemplating remarriage, and I'm not a judge and jury. I don't give people permission. I'm, I don't sit in that role. And they ask me my opinion. And I say, I'm just going to ask you one question. What do you think Jesus Christ thinks of you marrying this person? Forget you prayed and God brought you together. Forget the experiences. Forget that you were in love in high school and you connected again through Facebook. I mean, like God uses that? I don't think so. But anyway, uh, however you're going to make this work for you, set that aside and ask the simple question, what do you think Christ thinks of your decision to marry this person, divorce this person, whatever? And it's just sort of a leveling question for me. Michael, you're going to do X. What do you think Christ thinks of that? Now, I don't know the answer that is universally applied to every situation. I know the answer for me that's my fallback wisdom principle. If I choose this and it works out, does God get the glory? If I choose it and Michael gets the glory, it's probably a fool's errand. So when it comes back to God's choice, not Saul, but David, to give God the glory. He chose Samuel to be the judge prophet, not others. And Samuel, in, in the storyline, it's, it's beautiful because Samuel's the one of integrity throughout the whole storyline and dies with his integrity in check. Saul, of course, is an epic failure. David has epic failures, but he's a forgiven king. Not, not the king, it's a teenage shepherd boy. Israel could not have missed this comparison, I don't think. The choice of God's king or the king that we wanted. 
and it would haunt them for consequences throughout all of Saul's life until Saul passes away. And we were in Bet-Shan just a few days ago, and on that tell, on that mountain, at some point in time, were the headless bodies of Saul and Jonathan that were tagged up on that tell. A site, that's where they were, their bodies were found after the Philistines killed them. The epic, sad ending. One sidebar story, and then we'll, we'll land the plane. Um, when we go to Israel and we take you up to En Gedi, uh, the spring of the wild goat, it's all in the same area where the caves of Adullam would have been, where Saul and David would have been running around, where the 300 men would have been hiding out in the caves. There's, they've mapped some 2,000 caves up there, obvious various sizes, but it's an easy area to see. You could go hide in the desert and be hard to find. And that's the story where David is on the run with his 300 men who are they're discouraged in debt. And there was the three Ds. What's the other one? Is a downtrodden, discouraged, and in debt. Three, the three Ds that, that followed David. And they're with him, and, and Saul comes in to relieve himself. To cover, it's a euphemism in Hebrew, to cover his feet. And they tell him, you know, David's right there hiding in the cave. And they go, God's delivered him into your hands. And you know the story. David won't kill him. But what does David do? Cuts off part of the coat that maybe he laid beside him. Full story. Remember I read it? When he tears Samuel's coat as Samuel walks away after his failure, and he turns, God has torn the kingdom from your hands. Full circle. The boy David, who's now a young man. I, I shouldn't have done this. I cut off the garment. I shouldn't have done it. You're the king. You're the king. And he prostrates himself. Why does my Lord come looking for a dead flea? Why do you come out after a dead dog? I'm nothing. I would never raise my hand against the king. Couldn't be a more polar difference. God's choice is the choice you need to make. And it's really not that hard. Ask the question. Maybe that's the beginning for you and me. Well, the answer to this choice, if I choose this career path, this husband, this wife, this many children, uh, this way to invest my money, whatever it is you're choosing in life, who to work with, if I choose this, will God get the glory? 